Chapter 2 The Law of Adoration Aim of Adoration Question 649 In what does adoration consist? And the answer, in the elevation of the thought towards God. Through adoration, the soul draws nearer to Him. Question 650 Is adoration the result of an innate sentiment or the product of exterior teaching? And the answer, of innate sentiment, like the belief in the divinity, the consciousness of his weakness leads man to bow before the being who can protect him. Question 651. Are there peoples entirely without the sentiment of adoration? And the answer, no, for there never was a people of atheists. All feel that there is above them a supreme being. Question 652. May adoration be regarded as having its source in natural law? And the answer, it is included in natural law, since it is the result of a sentiment innate in man, for which reason it is found among all peoples, though under different forms. External Acts of Adoration Question 653. Are external manifestations essential to adoration? The answer, true adoration is in the heart. In all your actions, remember that the master's eyes is always upon you. Follow-up question, are external acts of worship useful? And the answer, yes, if they are not a vain pretense. It is always useful to set a good example. But those who perform acts of worship merely from affectation and for the sake of appearance, and whose conduct belies their seeming piety, set a bad example rather than a good one, and do more harm than they imagine. Question 654. Does God accord a preference to those who worship Him according to any particular mode? And the answer God prefers those who worship Him from the heart, with sincerity, and by doing what is good and avoiding what is evil. To those who fancy they honor Him by ceremonies which do not render them any better than their neighbors. All men are brothers and children of God. He calls to Him all who follow His laws, whatever may be the form under which they show their obedience. He who has only the externals of piety is a hypocrite. He whose worship is only a pretense and in contradiction with his conduct sets a bad example. He who professes to worship Christ and who is proud, envious, and jealous, who is hard and unforgiving to others, or ambitious of the goods of the earth, is religious with the lips only and not with the heart, God who sees all things will say to him, He who knows the truth and does not follow it is a hundredfold more guilty in the evil he does than the ignorant savage, and he will be treated accordingly in the day of retribution. If a blind man runs against you as he goes by, you excuse him. But if the same thing is done by a man who sees, you complain and with reason. Do not ask then if any form of worship be more acceptable than another, for it is as though you ask whether it is more pleasing to God to be worshipped in one tongue rather than another, 
Remember that the hymns addressed to him can reach him only through the door of the heart. Question 655. Is it wrong to practice the external rites of a religion in which we do not heartily believe? When this is done out of respect for those with whom we are connected, and in order not to scandalize those who think differently from us? And the answer, in such a case as in many others, it is the intention that describes the quality of the act. He whose only aim in so doing is to show respect for the belief of others does no wrong. He does better than the man who turns them into ridicule for the latter sins against charity. But he who goes through with such practices, simply from interested motives or from ambition, is contemptible in the light of God and of man. God could not take pleasure in those who only pretend to humiliate themselves before him in order to attract the approbation of their fellow men. Question 656. Is worship performed in common preferable to individual worship? And the answer, when those who sympathize in thought and feeling are assembled together, they have more power to attract good spirits to them. It is the same when they are assembled for worshiping God. But you must not therefore conclude that private worship is less acceptable, for each man can worship God in his own thought. Life of Contemplation Question 657. Have men who have given themselves up to a life of contemplation, doing nothing evil, and thinking only of God, any special merit in his eyes? And the answer, no, for if they do nothing evil, they do nothing good. And besides, not to do good is, in itself, evil. God wills that his children should think of him, but he does not will that they should think only of him, since he has given men duties to discharge upon the earth. He who consumes his life in meditation and contemplation does nothing meritorious in the sight of God, because such a life is entirely personal and useless to mankind, and God will call him to account for the good he has failed to do. Prayer Question 658. Is prayer acceptable to God? And the answer, prayer is always acceptable to God when dictated by the heart, for the intention is everything in his sight, and the prayer of the heart is preferable to one read from a book, however beautiful it may be, if read with the lips rather than with the thought. Prayer is acceptable to God when it is offered with faith, fervor, and sincerity but do not imagine that he will listen to that of the vain, proud, or selfish man unless it be offered as an act of sincere repentance and humility. Question 659. What is the general character of prayer? The answer, prayer is an act of adoration. To pray to God is to think of Him, to draw nearer to Him, to put oneself in communication with Him, he who prays may propose to himself three things, to praise, to ask, and to thank. Question 660. Does prayer make men better? And the answer, yes, for he who prays with fervor and confidence has more strength for withstanding the temptations of evil and for obtaining from God the help of good spirits to assist him in so doing. 
such help is never refused, when asked for with sincerity. Follow-up question, how is it that persons who pray a great deal are sometimes very unamiable, jealous, envious, and harsh, wanting in benevolence and forbearance, and even extremely vicious? And the answer, what is needed is not to pray a great deal, but to pray aright. Such persons suppose that all the virtue of prayer is in its length, and shut their eyes to their own defects. Prayer for them is an occupation, a means of passing their time, but it is not a study of themselves. In such cases it is not the remedy that is ineffective, but the mode in which it is employed. Question 661. Is there any use in asking God to forgive us our faults? And the answer, God discerns the good and the evil. Prayer does not hide faults from his eyes. He who asks of God the forgiveness of his faults obtains that forgiveness only through a change of conduct. Good deeds are the best prayers, for deeds are of more worth than words. Question 662. Is there any use in praying for others? And the answer, the spirit of him who prays exercises an influence through his desire to do good. By prayer he attracts to himself good spirits who take part with him in the good he desires to do. Kardec adds, We possess in ourselves, through our thought and our will, a power of action that extends far beyond the limits of our corporeal sphere. To pray for others is an act of our will. If our will be ardent and sincere, it calls good spirits to the aid of the party prayed for, and thus helps him by the suggestion of good thoughts and by giving him the strength of the body and of the soul which he needs. But in his case also, the prayer of the heart is everything, that of the lips is nothing. Question 663. Can we, by praying for ourselves, avert our trials, or change their nature? And the answer is, your trials are in the hands of God, and there are some of them that must be undergone to the very end. But God always takes account of the resignation with which they are born. Prayer calls to your help good spirits who give you strength to bear them with courage, so that they seem to you less severe. Prayer is never useless when it is sincere, because it gives you strength which is of itself an important result. Heaven helps him who helps himself is a true saying. God could change the order of nature at the various contradictory demands of his creatures. For what appears to be a great misfortune to you from your narrow point of view, and in relation to your femoral life on earth, is often a great blessing in relation to the general order of the universe, and besides, of how many of the troubles of his life is man himself the author, through his short-sightedness, or through his wrongdoing. He is punished in that wherein he has sinned. Nevertheless, your reasonable requests are granted more often than you suppose. You think your prayer has not been heeded, because God has not worked a miracle on your behalf while, in fact, he has really assisted you, but by means so natural that they seem to you to have been the effect of chance or of the ordinary course of things, and, more often still, 
He suggests to your minds the thought of what you must do in order to help yourselves out of your difficulties. Question 664. Is it useful to pray for the dead and for suffering spirits? And if so, in what way can our prayers soften or shorten their sufferings? Have they the power to turn aside the justice of God? And the answer, prayer can have no effect upon the designs of God. But the spirit for whom you pray is consoled by your prayer, because you thus give him proof of interest, and because he who is unhappy is always comforted by the kindness which compassionates his suffering. On the other hand, by your prayer, you excite him to repentance, and to the desire of doing all that in him lies to become happy, and it is in this way that you may shorten the term of his suffering, provided that he, on his side, seconds your action by that of his will. This desire for improvement, excited by your prayer in the mind of the suffering spirit, attracts to him spirits of higher degree, who come to enlighten him, console him, and give him hope. Jesus prayed for the sheep that have gone astray, thereby showing you that you cannot, without guilt, neglect to do the same for those who have the greatest need of your prayers. Question 665. What is to be thought of the opinion which rejects the idea of praying for the dead because it is not prescribed in the gospel? And the answer, Christ has said to all mankind, love one another. This injunction implies for all men the duty of employing every possible means of testifying their affection for each other, but without entering into any details in regard to the manner of attaining that end. If it be true that nothing can turn aside the Creator from applying to every action of every spirit the absolute justice of which He is the type, it is nonetheless true that the prayer you address to Him on behalf of a suffering spirit for whom you feel affection or compassion is accepted by him as a testimony of remembrance that never fails to bring relief and consolation to the sufferer. As soon as the latter manifests the slightest sign of repentance, but only then, help is sent to him. But he is never allowed to remain in ignorance of the fact that a sympathizing heart has exerted itself on his behalf and is always left under the consoling impression that this friendly intercession has been of use to him. Thus your intervention necessarily induces a feeling of gratitude and of affection on his part to the friend who has given him this proof of kindness and of pity, and the mutual affection enjoined upon all men by Christ will thereby have been developed or awakened between you and him. Both of you will thus have obeyed the law of love and union imposed on all the beings of the universe, that divine law which will usher in the reign of unity that is the aim and end of a spirit's education. Question 666. May we pray to spirits? And the answer, you may pray to good spirits as being the messengers of God and the executants of his will but their power, which is always proportional to their elevation, depends entirely on the master of all things, without whose permission nothing takes place. For this reason, prayers addressed to them are only effective if accepted by God. Polytheism 
Question 667. How is it that polytheism, although it is false, is nevertheless one of the most ancient and widespread of human beliefs? And the answer, the concept of the unity of God could only be, in the mind of man, the result of the development of his ideas. Incapable in his ignorance of conceiving of an immaterial being without a determinate form, acting upon matter, man naturally attributed to him the attributes of corporeal nature, that is to say, a form and a face, and thenceforth everything that appeared to surpass the proportions of an ordinary human intelligence was regarded by him as a divinity. Whatever he could not understand was looked upon by him as being the work of a supernatural power, and from that assumption to the belief in the existence of as many distinct powers as the various effects which he beheld but could not account for. There was but a step. But there have been in all ages enlightened men who have comprehended the impossibility of the world's being governed by this multitude of powers without a supreme overruling direction and who have thus been led to raise their thoughts to the conception of one sole God. Question 668. As phenomena attesting the action of spirits have occurred in all ages of the world, and have thus been known from the earliest times, may they not have helped to induce a belief in the plurality of gods? And the answer, undoubtedly, for as men applied the term God to whatever surpassed humanity, spirits were for them so many gods. For this reason, whenever a man distinguished himself among all others by his actions, his genius, or an occult power incomprehensible by the vulgar, he was made a god of and worshipped as such after his death. Kardec adds, The word God among the ancients had a wide range of meaning. It did not, as in our days, represent the master of nature, but was a generic term applied to all beings who appeared to stand outside of the pale of ordinary humanity and, as the manifestations that have since been known as spiritists, had revealed to them the existence of incorporeal beings acting as one of the elementary powers of nature. They called them gods, just as we call them spirits. It is a mere question of words with this difference, however, that in their ignorance, purposely kept up by those whose interests it served, they built temples and raised altars to them, making them offerings which became highly lucrative for the persons who had charge of this mode of worship, whereas for us, spirits are merely creatures like ourselves, more or less advanced, and having cast off their earthly envelope. If we carefully study the various attributes of the pagan divinities, we shall easily recognize those of the spirits of our day, at every degree of the scale of spirit life their physical state in the worlds of higher advancement, the part taken by them in the things of the earthly life, and the various properties of the para-spirit. Christianity, in bringing its divine light to our world, has taught us to refer our adoration to the only object to which it is due, but it could not destroy what is an element of nature, and the belief in the existence of the incorporeal beings around us 
has been perpetuated under various names. Their manifestations have never ceased, but they have been diversely interpreted and often abused under the veil of mystery beneath which they were kept, while religion has regarded them as miracles. The incredulous have looked upon them as foolery, but at the present time, thanks to a more serious study of the subject, carried on in the broad daylight of scientific investigation, the doctrine of spirit presence and spirit action, and stripped of the superstitious fancies by which it has been obscured for ages, reveals to us one of the sublimest and most important principles of nature. Sacrifices Question 669. The custom of offering human sacrifices date from the remotest antiquity. How can mankind have been led to believe that such an enormity could be pleasing to God? And the answer is, in the first place, through their not having comprehended God as being the source of all goodness, among primitive peoples, matter predominates over spirit. Their moral qualities not being yet developed, they give themselves up to the instincts of brutality. In the next place, the men of the primitive periods naturally considered that a living creature must be much more valuable in the sight of God than any merely material object, and this consideration led them to emoliate to their divinities first animals and afterwards men, because according to their false ideas, they thought that the value of a sacrifice was proportioned to the importance of the victim. In your earthly life, when you wish to offer a present to anyone, you select a gift, the costliness of which is proportioned to the amount of attachment or consideration that you desire to testify to the person to whom you offer it. It was natural that men who were ignorant of the nature of the deity should do the same. Follow-up question. The sacrificing of animals, then, preceded that of human beings? And the answer, such was undoubtedly the case. Another follow-up question. According to this explanation, the custom of sacrificing human beings did not originate in mere cruelty. And the answer, no, but in a false idea as to what would be acceptable to God. Look, for instance, at the story of Abraham. In later times, men have still further debased this false idea by immolating their enemies, the object of their own personal animosity. But God has never exacted sacrifices of any kind, those of animals, no more than those of men. He could not be honored by the useless destruction of his own creations. Question 670. Have human sacrifices, when offered with a pious intention, ever been pleasing to God? And the answer, no, never. But God always weighs the intention which dictates any act. Men, being ignorant, may have believed they were performing a laudable deed in immolating their fellow beings, and in such a case, God would accept their intention, but not their deed. The human race, in working out its own improvement, naturally came to recognize its error and to abominate the idea of sacrifices that ought to never have entered into enlightened minds. I say enlightened because, however, dense the veil of materiality in which they were enveloped, their free will sufficed, even then, to give them a glimmering perception of their origin and their destiny, 
and many among them already understood, by intuition, the wickedness they were committing, but which they nonetheless accomplished for the gratification of their passions. Question 671. What should be thought of the wars styled religious? The sentiment that induces a nation of fanatics to exterminate the greatest possible number of those who do not share their belief with a view to rendering themselves acceptable to God would seem to proceed from the same source as that which formerly led them to emulate their fellow creatures as sacrifices. And the answer, such wars are stirred up by evil spirits, and the men who wage them place themselves in direct opposition to the will of God, which is that each man should love his brother as himself, since all religions, or rather all peoples, worship the same God, whatever the name by which they call him, why should one of them wage a war of extermination against another, simply because its religion is different, or has not yet reached the degree of enlightenment arrived at by the aggressor? Not to believe the word of him who was sent by God, and animated by his spirit, is excusable on the part of peoples who neither saw him nor witnessed the acts performed by him, and at all events how you can hope they will hearken to his message of peace when you try to force it upon them by fire and sword. It is true they have to be enlightened, and that is your duty to endeavor to teach them the doctrine of Christ, but this must be done by persuasion and gentleness, not by violence and bloodshed. The greater number among you do not believe in the communication we have with certain mortals, how could you expect that strangers should believe your assertions in regard to this fact if your acts belied the doctrine you profess? Question 672. Was the offering of the fruits of the earth more acceptable in the sight of God than the sacrificing of animals? And the answer, it must be evidently more agreeable to God to be worshipped by the offering of the fruits of the earth than that by of the blood of the victims. But I've already answered your question in telling you that God's judgment is directed to the intention and that the outward fact is of little importance in his sight. A prayer sent up from the depths of the heart is a hundredfold more agreeable to God than all the offerings you could possibly make to him. I repeat, the intention is everything, the fact nothing. Question 673. Might not these offerings be rendered more agreeable to God by consecrating them to the relief of those who lack the necessaries of life, and in that case, might not the sacrificing of animals accomplished in view of a useful end be as meritorious as is the reverse when subserving no useful end, or profiting only those who are in need of nothing? Would there not be something truly pious in consecrating to the poor? the first fruits of all that God grants us upon the earth? And the answer, God always blesses those who do good. To help the poor and the afflicted is the best ways of always honoring him. I do not mean to say that God disapproves of the ceremonies you employ in praying to him, but a good deal of the money thus spent might be more usefully employed. God loves simplicity in all things. The man who attaches more importance to the externals than to the heart is a narrow-minded spirit. How, then, could it be possible for God to regard a form as any importance in comparison with a sentiment 
of which it is the expression. For those interested in learning more about Spiritism, you can find the entire The Spirits book on PDF. Look up Allen Kardec space PDF on your favorite search engine. If you wish to explore more about the levels of heaven and the attributes of a spirit and the future of earth, I suggest you read my series of three books, starting with Heaven and Below, next Spirits and the Spirit Universe, and the third book, How Spirits Guide Us. God bless.